Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to another episode here on the DCVC podcast. This is your host, Akash Bhatt, and each week I bring you leading investors and operators investing and building tech companies all over the world. Well, like every other episode, I'm really excited to share this one with all of you as well. I have a very good friend and investor, Tarun Sharma, sitting across the table from me today, and I'm extremely confident that his learnings and journey within venture capital makes for a fantastic listen for any operator or investor within the Indian landscape. My guest today, as I previously mentioned, is Tarun Sharma, Managing Partner at Mega Delta Capital Advisors. A sub-advisor to Millennia Capital, a Mauritius-based investment fund, as well as an investment manager at Mega Delta Capital Fund 1, a SEBI-registered Category 2 investment alternate fund. The fund is invested in companies such as Goki, Nova, Irify, Naptol, First Cry, MoneyTap, among many others. He brings more than 18 years of work experience, including 16 years in principal investing and investment advisory in India and all over the world. He currently serves on the boards of numerous companies, including Intelligence Node, Panakia Medical Technologies, Airworks Engineering, Nova Fertility, and FirstCry.com. Before launching Mega Delta Capital, Tarun formed the core investment advisory team for NEA India, where he led investments in consumer, healthcare, and technology companies. Before that, he worked for People Capital Private Equity, where he was involved in transaction structuring and execution, as well as actively managing portfolio companies in the consumer and media sectors. He began his career at Goldman Sachs International in London, first with the equity derivatives team and then with the global macro proprietary trading team where he developed a strong understanding of macro themes and translated them into investable opportunities. Well, in this episode, we talk about his journey into venture capital, all the learnings that he's had working with some excellent portfolio companies who built great brands within the Indian tech landscape, and more importantly, why he is bullish on the Indian healthcare ecosystem. So without further ado, let's head in and listen to everything that Tarun has learned over the course of his investment journey in India. Hi, Tarun. Welcome to the DCVC podcast. I'm extremely excited to chat all things investing with you today and take a walk down memory lane into the early days of your journey and everything that you've encompassed over the last uh, decade and a half or so. But before we go ahead and talk about the meat of the conversation, firstly, welcome to the podcast. And how's the year kicked off for you? Hi, Akash. It's a pleasure to be here with you. The year's gone off well. Um, I had a viral fever early in the year. So got that out of the way. But uh, but otherwise, no, I'm excited about this year. I feel uh, there's a lot of interesting opportunities that come up in times like this. Um, there's some interesting work that our portfolio companies are doing. So I look forward to how they are performing and how they do in uh, in these times. So yeah, the years, uh, it's, it's an exciting time. Well, you and I both got the viral fever out of the way at the beginning of the year. So that's something that we have in common outside of the other things that we talked upon before we got onto the recording. When we'll come to a little bit of that in uh, a short while. But one of the things that I typically kick off the episode with is trying to understand how people eventually end up in venture capital. Because when I look back at my own journey, and we were discussing this a little while ago, I'm an accidental VC. I never thought that my career would eventually end up here where I am today. And little did I ever think that my life would be here in the United States of all places. So I'm curious to understand how things played out for you because you know, as somebody who went to engineering school and then business school and then private equity, how does that path really end up in venture capital along the years? And did you from an early days really even know that this is where you would see yourself 15, 20 years down the line, working with early stage founders, investing in companies and really you know, trying to be part of an ecosystem that's thriving currently in India? Yeah, no, I agree. I think a lot of it was um, just good fortune, serendipity, whatever uh, we ascribe to it. So my journey was once, uh, as soon as I left business school, I was uh, I got into Goldman because I'd done my internship with them and they made me an offer to join the London office. And this was completely on the market side. And that was, I was spending time with, you know, with uh, this was a prop, prop macro t- trading team in Goldman. And this was, again, the sharpest minds in the business. They would be doing cross-asset stuff around uh, 
equities, commodities, interest rate, uh, and you know, layering it with options. But the idea was they were really doing a macro based on a macro trend that they would like to back. And I was I ended up doing a lot of uh, work with them around research, primarily focused on equities. So while that was exciting on really trying to get a global landscape view of the investing world, one, I was always focused on India. And then, you know, this is 2002, 2004, 2005, and coming off from the dot-com bust, India was doing quite well. And the first moves of private equity are starting to happen in India. I was just uh, consumed by this uh, feeling that India is the place to be just because from a growth perspective, but also you know, the market, the, the private markets were still very, public markets were very thin. So a lot of new brands will come, a lot of new business models will emerge, but all from the private side. So how do you engage with that? And so I wanted to not just move to India, but start working on the private side as opposed to the public market side, which I was doing in Goldman. And, you know, my boss tried to convince me not to go for it. And he was very sweet, but I decided to take the plunge and came to, uh, made the move to India, moved to Hyderabad uh, that we we're talking about, one of my favorite cities, and um, spent two, three years just uh, working closely with entrepreneurs as a part of the fund that I joined. Um, and that that gave me a lot of excitement. I just didn't, you know, when you're in a place where you've grown up, you understand the social aspect of it, you understand the founder mentality to a large extent, and you overlay that with your understanding of how businesses should evolve, just uh, and getting that right sometimes and getting that wrong also sometimes it just gives uh, for me it was a very very exciting place to be you know you you're you're sitting with people who really know their stuff quite well who live and breathe their businesses like founders and uh, on the other end you are also engaging with lps who are sort of you know in a macro context understanding india and allocating money on that basis so after spending a few years with that fund that's when I moved, uh, I got an opportunity because NEA, one of the global VCs were setting up the India practice and uh, uh, the the two partners who, uh, who were there, Bala and Ruchir, both I knew very well. Uh, Ruchir was my batchmate from uh, I'm Ahmedabad. And so we ended up coming together as a very nice um, group who set up the NEA India practice. Um, and eventually, both I and Richard, we joined as VP and we got promoted to partner in that setup. But again, we learned from the best minds in the business in NEA because they were very strong in healthcare and enterprise tech. And that was our thesis for India, that in addition to consumer, which ends up being a core part of most of the VC portfolios, yeah. we said that enterprise tech is early for India, but we should be there. It's India's time will come very soon there. And then healthcare, of course, we all know the massive opportunity that exists. So... But one thing that NEA would do very well is just go after differentiation and seek that what is the innovation that we are bringing to this market, to this business model, to this sector. Uh, so we ended up, while we were not really early stage VC, our approach in India was doing more late stage VC slash early growth, if you, if you may call it, which in their parlance, they call it venture growth equity. And that approach ended up uh, being very well suited to our own backgrounds and our own approach to investing, which was, you know, look at companies which have, you know, which have crossed the product risk perspective or the business model uh, uh, milestones they've crossed. And now it's, they're really looking for scale. And how do we start capturing the companies which are really interesting innovation in place and which can now sort of really, you know, break that scale barrier and go to the escape velocity. So that that was my journey. Then when we came into NEA, we'd made all these investments and, you know, we were investing out of the global pool and then an opportunity rose where NEA was sort of, you know, they were focusing back on the US and both China and India, they were, uh, uh, they were looking to uh, spin off. And at that opportunity, we took on the uh, sort of, uh, uh, took on the decision that let's turn entrepreneur. So that's how Mega Delta Capital was formed. We bought up the portfolio, uh, and we were uh, supported by uh, uh, reputed VC uh, LPs in that buyout. And uh, that's how, in you know, we we came together with the portfolio that we had backed while we were at NEA. And uh, and now we are VCs, but also entrepreneurs. So. My level of entrepreneurial empathy has gone up manifold in the last three, four years uh, since we have uh, since we have turned this way. But that broadly has been my journey. So I would say that my first uh, uh, sort of connect with VCs happened when I moved back to India. 
and it was a bit of a uh, you know bit bit of a plunge in the deep water but i just fell in love with it the, the second thing which i really enjoyed doing is just looking at the how technology is changing healthcare uh, i do look at healthcare technology and uh, uh, consumer uh, but it's that something that really sparks uh, joy in me is that whole combination of how healthcare can be really changed to you know change yeah. clinical outcomes to apply to patient care and so on and that's something that sort of within the sectors i would say that is my favorite child right now i want to touch upon the first uh, thing that you mentioned there which is you know when you first got introduced to venture capitals when you got back to india i want to touch upon healthcare just a moment because that's going to be a main subject for us but let's talk about the evolution that's come about in the market since the time that you first entered vc to where we are today because a lot has changed in that period and you know they obviously say vc years are like dog years and you know it really a little bit of time you spend in the industry can can really give you a lot of insight and and a massive experience just in terms of what happens in the ecosystem and the kind of transformation your portfolio companies can have can have both in a good way and a bad way so you've obviously been exposed to that both from an nea point of view like a delta you're obviously going to be seeing a lot more in the coming years but let's talk about how what that journey has looked like for you personally and having been at that vantage point where you entered venture capital to where we are just talk to us and you know about the changes that you have seen that's come about because some of our listeners are listeners who are listening to it for the last couple of years so their introduction to venture capital perhaps maybe over the last <laughs> few years or their exposure has probably been in the last few years where you know there's been a lot of media attention that has come about in the startup ecosystem but prior to that it's pro- it was probably different you know when i were first initially got started in you know anything that's got to do with startups was almost a decade ago and the world looked very different back then there was less exposure to companies of course back back in the day but that journey is kind of like i when i look back it's been such a phenomenal 10 years that india has had i'm sure when you came in at at a different level where you had an opportunity to write checks and meet companies and speak to companies it might have looked very different so let's talk about that journey a little bit before we delve into something that that's a little bit more um, healthcare centric Sure, sure. Yeah, it's um, you know you're making me sound like an uncle, but let me <laughs> let me give my own. You know, from from starting from two thousand and seven eight, when I really started looking at opportunities in India and doing deals. Unfortunately, technology was there, but very very limited focus. Right, of course, you would imagine you know penetration was low, mobile phones, smartphones, all of that was no longer there. Yeah. So what we're really trying to do is move systems from unorganized to organized, which is like mm-hmm. unorganized retail to organized retail. What categories can we go into? Um, we had made an investment in uh, Med Plus, which list, list, listed recently, which was trying to provide a better quality pharma distribution experience because you know there were spurious medicines, they were not temperature controlled, and just those simple things would make you stand apart in the market. Right. Um, so it was. So I would say and. of course capital was limited i would not say that there were a lot of seed funds out there there were not too many angel investors that would do so entrepreneurs had to bootstrap to get to a point where somebody like our fund or you know a late stage vc or early growth fund could come in and then back them um so that was you know it was a tough time to be an entrepreneur and also there were not too many moats you could create through technology that all started happening from 2010 11 12 when you see the first sort of you know the flip cards started emerging uh, or right. some on the e-commerce side started emerging first which is where web based distribution and online uh, commerce started taking i mean started taking more more and more precedence the real uh, dollar started flowing in only from i would say 2014 2015 even in 2015 when we did our first enterprise tech deals the arrs were sub 500k was sub 400k so even the uh, you know what we were backing was really do you have a unique technology fine it's uh, you know you have initial strong clients let's back them but there were no precedence of companies hitting 4 5 6 7 million dollars arr which seem like common place right now mm. so even that journey uh, to back enterprise tech was very very nascent uh, all the way in 2014 but consumer had started become picking up and when and really the app world took off in 2016 17 we had a bit of i don't know if you remember there was a taper tantrum that happened in the us yeah. which affected indian flows around 2014 15 so a bit of a funding winter that came in but the next wave that came after that was really when tech started coming into its own people really started leveraging machine learning started calling it ai 
but uh, it's uh, where real you know apps of very strong ui ux started coming out and various categories within e-commerce started getting good amount of capital we started off with the horizontals right where the flip cards and the snap deals and those guys got decent amount of capital and then verticalized e-commerce started around furniture yeah. mother and child uh, jewelry and so on groceries and so on so consumer started coming up and then enterprise tech were, was uh, scaling up quite nicely and then covid obviously accelerated all of that when that right. started and that's the last two years that your audiences know very well that uh, where e-commerce went into a hyper growth mode uh, enterprise tech a uh, lot of companies started crossing the 10 20 million dollars of arr hurdle um, and it's uh, and you know of course there's a winter right now but that's i would say that has been the journey where right from in 10 year horizon i've seen entrepreneurs really struggling to raise capital to develop a moat on the technology side to a place now where a lot of it seems commoditized yeah how have you seen yourself change as an investor tarun because we've talked about the industry changing and a lot of technology that's kind of technology and a few black swan events that have actually helped propel the industry and at the same time there's been a lot of foreign investors who have come into the country and obviously helped the ecosystem grow but while there's been growth on everybody else's front how what have you learned most about yourself as an investor in the last i would say 15 years or so oh gosh that's a deep question <laughs> If if you'll indulge me, there's a little guzzle that uh, I know that reflects on this. I'm gonna love so this. Huh? There's a there's a Pakistani poet called Ahmed Faraz, and he he wrote a guzzle. Kis taraf chalti hai ab hawa nahi malum. Haat uthaliye sabne par dua nahi malum. And then there's a nice couplet that comes in the middle which says, Manzilon ki tabdili bas nazar mein rehti hai. Ham bhi hote jaate hain kya se kya nahi malum. Wow. So it um, so basically it talks about we are focused on our goals so much and the goals keep changing, but we also keep on changing that we don't realize. Right. So it's a it's a bit of uh, I would say if I look inside, I think I started off being in VC focused a lot about it's all about you know crunching the numbers. It's all about understanding how technology technology is being leveraged, the business model. Um, but you know the more uh, you realize it's uh, you know you spend more time actually that aspect appears very simple you really need to most of the money that you make or the bad decisions you take are based on have you timed the opportunity right and mm. you know we were talking about it we you know you had a great food tech play but it was just too early in the ecosystem yeah and uh, it's it's all about timing it right so you have to take a view from a you know social environmental technology perspective are you timing it right and uh, you know there's only so much you can uh, progress about the future but a lot of it is the human element of it is just understanding is this entrepreneur the right one to back in terms of does he have is he immersed in that space can he most importantly attract both capital and people in his company because that effectively ends up being the success drivers um and of course there are other things that you know is he thinking right about the you know about the business uh, about the balance sheet side of it because the point at which we come in it's not simply about revenue growth it's not simply about profitability they have to get to the next level where they're thinking about capital efficiency so it's about balance sheet management yes. and so on so are they sophisticated enough to make that move from one level to the other level um so it becomes so much about the founders and people so from my perspective i have started appreciating the ability to spot and understand the founders um uh, and and back the right ones and of course have be on that journey with them as a partner throughout that uh, uh, you know throughout the, the investment period so i i would feel that has been my greatest learning um, in this space that being in touch with everything else that is business related but that uh, whole person to person connect is is something that will really drive the outcome and you know if if that partnership works well you can uh, you know things can can go really well for you uh, but you know that that can really make the difference between uh, a 4x return and a 6x 7x return just the ability to partner well with someone right i think you bring up some really interesting points that especially when you're talking about partnering with the right people because i was talking to kanika from vertex ventures a couple of days ago on the podcast um, and she was talking to me about how we are in the people business 
and we all are i mean if you think about it any technology business any anything that's related to vc we're all in it um together it's a people business and we make decisions as a collective unit and we live and die by those decisions unfortunately and oftentimes what happens is the feedback cycles at least within vc are so long that you don't really know whether you made the right decision or not for the longest period of time and sometimes you've you you you're kind of almost aligning with short feedback cycles hoping that those short feedback cycles are the ones that actually determine the fund in the long run right mm-hmm. now while you're thinking about fund in one perspective and you're thinking about growth of the startups at the other and as a fund manager today where you're sitting at your vantage point where you know both stakeholders are equally important because on one side you've got the lps and the other side you've got your portfolio companies and they both go hand in hand for you to you know give the best returns how do you optimize as a fund manager for best performance on both sides managing the lps expectations and ensuring that you're bringing the best returns but at the same time pushing a portfolio companies and making sure that your team understands top to bottom that this is the investment philosophy these are the kind of companies that we invest in this is the kind of support that we provide and continue to you know add value at different sets of points of time with portfolio companies and ensure that they are hitting their metrics because it's such an uncertain ball game where there's too many cogs in the wheel there are too many variables that you perhaps do not have control of but at the same time you do have control of a certain things how do you think about it today as a fund manager when there's so many uncertainties and you have both sides of the table to cater to and answer to, and you're answerable in one way shape or form right right i think that's uh, that's again very uh, good question which effectively means there's not a i don't have a great answer for it <laughs> so here's how i think about it i think we are in the business of because we are minority investors we don't really effectively exercise a lot of control on our investments right which means our 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 core job is to influence positively uh, either the entrepreneurs or our co-investors or the board so that's you know that's the ecosystem we play it when we talk about a particular deal if you go, and you know and that's one i think a big mind shift shift that a lot of investors need to do i think a lot of investors end up thinking that because i have given some money to a company and up control the entrepreneur control the company i think that's that's the wrong mindset and i think it's yeah. going away over time but i've seen that sort of having being sticky in some in some areas so with, with your permit with your permission may i interrupt you for a moment because i just want to i don't want to lose this thought that's in my head i want to play devil's advocate to that point that you made there because i think it's very interesting that you mentioned that you know as minority investors we don't um you know we don't have a lot of say and that's something that you know we as a fund as well have said in the past because we were minority investors we never took a both seat we never put in the biggest check we never led rounds is that in some way a way to cop out on accountability that we can't have a lot of things and this is a good way to just say hey we don't write the biggest checks and therefore we are shying away from taking accountability on that front is that right. something that our industry is kind of like plagued and is that mindset something that eventually needs to change for us to actually say yeah sure we're a small check writer but we still can influence a lot on the company side right so so two things here i think the difference here is i would say you know when you take invest in a company and i'm not saying whether you are a largest check writer or not i would compare it with the ownership stake you have if you're less than 50% if you're a minority then you uh, you know then you exercise your protection rights over right. some matter so you say i'm going to make sure this company has proper governance standard Mm. i want to make sure that there's enough reporting happening to the board and the board processes are in place so you make sure those are in place but you can't be then uh, you know sort of compelling the entrepreneur i don't want this hire to happen i don't i'm not comfortable with this hire i want you to hire this guy i want right. you to go into this market i want you to develop this product those things you cannot be forcing the entrepreneur to do you can like i said you can only you can. so on the business side you have backed the entrepreneur for a reason if you are doing the entrepreneur's job then one of them is not needed so i would simply i would simply say that you know have your uh, you know draw the boundary conditions very clearly to say you know governance tak 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 non negotiable you got to do this mm. and a lot of the f- fund managers will articulate that in the document as well so it's actually binding on the entrepreneur whereas on the business side and all that stuff i will over, i will exercise my oversight i will of course tell you when things are not looking right and so on 
but I can't be the decision maker there. So I would I would make that you can't cop out on the other on the housekeeping stuff and say, yeah. oh, it was only five percent of the company. If it was if you are there, you're responsible for it. Whereas on the business side, uh, you can, you know, you you're backing the entrepreneur primarily. So that's the way I would differentiate it. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. And the reason I brought that up is because when I try to typically understand how fund managers think about um, you know, owning that expectation on the LP side, because it's a very difficult conversation. And of course, you want to have great relationships on the LP side. And also at the same time, manage a portfolio companies where there's a lot of uncertainty and you don't want to cross the line. There's a fine line between adding value and becoming overbearing. And mm-hmm. I've seen, and I've been on both ends, unfortunately, or both sides. And that has been a hard lesson that I've learned along the years is not, or knowing when to like, you know, take take a stance back and say, hey, I I think this is something that sometimes you got to make that mistake. It's that, you know, like, you know, you have, I've got a brother, you've got a child, um, you know, it's knowing that they need to make that mistake and they need to learn that on their own, as opposed to saying, I think I know you're going to like bump into something here. And that instinct that comes in saying, don't do it. Yeah. And that's what I, I mean to say is, you know, how much do you like exercise that control as opposed to, you know, right. with, where there's accountability with the LPs and you know that this mistake can set you back a couple of months and you know that you need to continue to show these returns and at least on paper for you to go out and raise your next fund. So there's always that kind of thing that that happened on one side while you're thinking about your next fundraise and ho- ensuring that yeah. I know, I know, I know I need to like hopefully step in. I can step in. I can help you. I can nudge you in the right direction because it is a very self-serving business also in a way. We all as you know investors or you as a fund manager will also, also try and look at it as yeah, I'm accountable to my LPs. I'm also trying to be self-serving here and try to like, of course, bring some returns to everybody involved. So that's where I was coming from. And that's one of the reasons why I yeah. typically post this question to like all VCs and ask them, especially fund managers, how are they thinking about it? And what is their initial approach or thought process and framework around this? Yeah, I think uh, the way we, uh, the way we, from an LP perspective, I would put it this way, right? That first of all, I have, you know, the, I, I know what you meant by the example you gave, but we think of, at least, you know, I wouldn't say we, I would say, I think of it as just being a partnership of equals, right? Mm. I, I'm in the business of showing them the mirror sometimes, the entrepreneur, uh, and giving them what my learnings have been, up to them to accept or reject it. And it's the relationship that, it's, that you develop with the entrepreneur it determines how they accept it. So if I have a good relationship, I'm saying, look, I know you feel strongly about this way, but trust me, this is the way it's going to be. Uh, depending on the relationship, they would take it. Um, and if things go wrong, then the relationship doesn't get affected. But you know, you always are mindful that you don't know, you don't have all the answers. You have some you know, experiences, you're trying to advise them based on the experiences. You may feel very strongly about it, but eventually the decision is theirs to take. Now, to your point of, you know, making them make some mistakes and allowing them to learn from it themselves, I think that's a fair point. Uh, We do end up sometimes not being too prescriptive on things such as hiring or people that we want people or the people, the team that they're building, because, you know, they have to deal with the person on day in, day out. If I advise them because of some experience I feel is relevant or irrelevant, it does not... uh, cover for the chemistry aspect of it. So I let them take a lot of those decisions uh, and which they rightly should. What, where we as investors get sensitive is for instance, we are getting into an exit mode. We have eight months to exit, seven months on exit. I would at that point make the request not to do any experimentation, which might sort of, you know, provide a a little bit of turbulence or blip in the numbers. Mm. I would say just, Keep the ship steady. You're into discussion with an with an investor who's coming in. Don't try too many experiments at this point. Just keep it, close the transaction and then move on. And that way I'm also being responsive uh, or accountable to my LPs by not letting them do things all the time, especially when my fund returns or when my exit is in question or even or any other transaction is happening, which is a very you know milestone event in, for the company. So I would say... On those issues, I would be a little more sensitive and tell them that, look, deal making is something I know very well. Run the diligence this way. Engage with the incoming investor this way. Don't try all these experiments. So I I know when I need to push the pedal and really impose my views, I would say. 
and developing on the and de depending on the relationship they will accept it okay tarun this is your uh, you know this is your uh, grounds i will i will see to you but on the business side it will always be a discussion i think this what do you think can we get to a common ground there uh, because he's the or she's the operator in that case right now i think you've given a great example and explained yourself out there and that was what i was hoping to achieve with that question i think you provided more insight into how you think about it so thank you so much for that and moving along the conversation i know there were a couple of things that i wanted to touch upon over the course of this journey one is just some of the learnings that you've had by working with some of your best performing portfolio companies and the not so best performing portfolio companies as well because i think there's a great bit of learning that you can have from both now from your nea days to where you are now at beka delta i'd love to understand what are some of the key traits and good things that the best founders have done that perhaps can serve as a piece of advice today for any founder that's out there building because you've had some very successful companies um as part of your portfolio you worked with some good founder great founders in fact So, what have you taken away from that experience that you can share with some of our listeners who are either budding entrepreneurs or one or already entrepreneurs who can perhaps use those insights to incorporate that into their own entrepreneurial journeys today? Sure, sure. I would let me give. Uh, so, one of the you know successes in our consumer portfolio has been FirstCry. dot com. Yeah, uh, and. you know when we uh, the the good part about this company was that we were meeting this company tracking them for a while um and then supam is a great operator is a great entrepreneur who saw this opportunity and you know there was there were times when the market was not very supportive but he stuck through it um, and sort of gave a great outcome and hopefully they'll have a great ipo down the line but the learnings from my uh, that i uh, that i can take from my my investing journey with respect to first try is uh firstly uh, supam was very very mindful of the indian consumer he was very clear that an indian mother who's just had a kid she's not going to uh rely on uh pricing right you just give her a discount doesn't mean she's going to buy it it's the trust the brand value quality of the product is paramount secondly she's always uh short of time you need to have good quality fulfillment in place and he was not uh, stuck to a us kind of model or pure online he was only channel from day one this from 2012 2013 onwards when he started he had franchise off uh, offline businesses in place because again the buyer mindset was if i need to buy a diaper fine i can buy it online but if i need to buy a pram i need to find buy baby gear i need to buy apparel i need the touch and feel to see the uh, quality so they uh, made sure that of course they had offline presence but the conversion from offline to online they were they would really push it um and and always having a view to building a brand so for instance their own in house brand that they developed as is now if i remember correctly is, i mean although we exited a while back is almost close to 50% of the revenues so they have developed a brand play within a marketplace which is very meaningful very high margin and so on so the uh, the learnings from the founder there was having a very deep understanding of the buyer of whom i whom i'm serving having a very strong uh, uh, sort of insight into what business model might work it it has to be a combination and online and offline and after that you know everybody else uh, is now talking about uh, omnichannel model but they were very uh, the first ones in that and we had to explain to our usic because they had invested in diapers.com and they were like hang on why are they doing this offline but we got it that where is coming from and then the third aspect is always thinking in terms of brand india is is a brand scarce company a brand scarce country sorry so the the more and more brands that you can push and that you can create in india the value of the company can really go up manifold and you know and of course the good aspects that from a financial perspective that come on the back of it so that was one example that i really uh, sort of enjoyed in my journey as and i was learning from him as i it was you know from a consumer perspective how he would treat the consumer it was it was fascinating what about if you take an maybe not an example but what are some of the things that you've learned from the founders that unfortunately have fallen wayside and probably not built the best companies or not gone really not really tapped into the potential that they initially showed what are the learnings from the not so best performing companies that you've had yeah i think uh, 
I would say that we've been great. I mean, fortunate that we've not had any massive issues which were uh, primarily driven by a very, very poor entrepreneur. I would put it that way. Uh, in the companies where things did not pan out as well, it was a combination of, in most cases, I would say, a regulatory change not going the way we had expected. So for instance, uh, and in, in the other cases, still having some government exposure in terms of, uh, you know, B2G kind of business and that not really panning out as, as well we had, uh, we had assumed. So my learnings from there are less about the founders, but more about when we do our own investment analysis, stay away from companies that we are relying uh, on a regulatory change to impact the business. Uh, for instance, way back we had invested, you know, we looked at a company that was an e-waste. And uh, even now there are no large e-waste companies in India, although it's such a massive problem. Yeah. Um, so it's it's some of those where you rely on a regulatory change to happen, but it didn't pan out. So those are the risks that I would say we, we have taken out from our investment thesis that no very limited government uh, exposure, be it on the regulatory side or be it on the direct as a client on the customer side. Right. Uh, I wouldn't say there are... Uh, for for some of the entrepreneurs, uh, I think being ab able to call it quits early when the regulation and the, this thing is not going in your favor is probably the the one uh, thing I would uh, I would highlight is be don't be too uh, invested in your idea that you cannot sit back and say hang on is the market is it still viable in the current market context or should I just keep pushing on it. While one thing that, that we all know that is a biomarker for an entrepreneur is that they're optimistic, they will keep on flying away at it. But at some point it becomes, uh, you know, the ability to pivot becomes critical as well in, in some situations. Um, so the, I, I would say that flexibility, I don't think, uh, you know, where things have gone off for us, I don't think we, we got that feed, feedback from the entrepreneur. But other than that, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't have any massive examples to share in terms of learnings. No, this is great. I mean, I think you've really talked about, you know, some of the great learnings that you've had both from either side of the uh, performance of some of the portfolio companies. And one thing I really liked, especially with the last answer there was the fact that, you know, not being tied and married too much to the idea. And um, I love the concept of founders being chameleons. And a chameleon founder is that who has the foundation knowledge of, you know, like every aspect about what's happening in the ecosystem and can, you know, change colors if needed. And also at the same time, be very malleable. And, you know, we talk about, you know, you know, venture capital in the context of, you know, camels and elephants and dragons and unicorns and everything. But I think what and we cockroaches. And cockroaches, you know, who can actually <laughs> last through all sorts of things. But, you know, as founders, we don't really like give associate any animals, unfortunately. And uh, today I'm taking that liberty to actually say that, you know, chameleons would be really a nice comparison. And that really goes to show that, you know, best founders are also able to like snap up opportunities. A great example is Zetwork, you know, a company that was almost no way close to where it is right now, but during the pandemic was able to like quickly snap up the opportunity and say, hey, we'll get into like, manufacturing and really transform the company itself right that's a good example small good small example but a good example of a company that's our founders who've been able to take that initiative and and run with it and that's what i mean by chameleon founders is just being open to ideas and you know you kind of have no choice but to learn that things will eventually change in the industry and how quickly can you really go out and change to that point what i've seen is the founders who have a very strong ability to set organizations and processes yeah. are ones who very who succeed massively at this you know that zoom out look at adjacencies and try and see what i can do so mm -hmm. if you if you are in uh, in your core business you have set up enough processes systems people uh, in place that allows you to take a step back and i can really see okay what else can i do strategically in the business to add value to the core thing or really go into a much higher value part of my value chain uh, that just gives them so much more bandwidth and ability to really go after that opportunity. And those are the best entrepreneurs who can do it. Otherwise, you know, you end up falling in the middle that you cannot focus on a core business because, you know, it still needs you. You're going there negotiating your contracts and you're doing all that 
you know, on day-to-day -day action versus really going and exploring a new business opportunity on the side. So I think that uh, there are people who are restless by nature who will want to explore new things because the core business just ends up, you know, uh, they, they want to do something new. But as investors, what we end up doing or is to understand that aspect of their personality and to say, fine, you can go and hunt for new opportunities, build a very solid team underneath you. And then mm -hmm. you have the benefit to go and do that. So it's a, it's it's how you can leverage that aspect of the entrepreneur really sharply without your core business being under any kind of risk. Yeah, I think for that, you need to have the right set of people as well. And I think, mm -hmm. as you mentioned as well, the foundation to a good business at any point of time is going to be its people. And that is the biggest asset that any founder can have. And you can experiment as much you want at any given point of time, but without the right set of people in your organization, it's very difficult to do that. Very difficult to pivot, very difficult to actually build businesses, grow businesses if you don't have the right set of people to actually do that. And, um, you know, there's one of my favorite books, which is called Liftoff. I don't know if you've read this by Eric um, Berger, who was one of the first employees at SpaceX, in which he talks about how obsessed Elon Musk was about um, hiring and how hiring was a priority. And he personally met with every single person that the company hired to the first 3,000 employees. And that required late nights, weekends. But he felt that it was more important to get the right people for his company than anything else. And that obsession of building the company starts with the obsession of hiring the right people. And if you take a look at the best companies even today in Valley or in India, They've all been built by fantastic entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs who have kind of taken ownership of different aspects of the business and and just flown with. That is why we've got all these mafias. You know, we've got these PayPal mafias of the world and, you know, the Microsoft yeah. mafias. But then in India as well, we've, we're having um, this Flipkart mafias and, you know, all of these that are coming out right now. That's because you've had some fantastic people who are now going out and building some great companies themselves. Yeah. So, and wait, uh, wait till the IPO happens of Flipkart. There'll be a lot more startups coming once they monetize their resources it's going to be uh, you'll see another nice wave of entrepreneurs coming up really looking forward to when that's going to happen yeah. and uh, in the in interest of time i could i could have continued talking about this for a longer period but then i want to talk to you about healthcare just a little bit in the last segment because sure. this is something when i talk to about every investor and not nobody has had a very clear-cut answer to this. And I'm hoping somebody who's invested in this space can probably add a little bit more insight. Now, when you take a look at mature markets, maybe Europe, China, United States, and we look at the healthcare industry as such, we see how plagued by problems it is. Even a mature market like the United States, yeah. the healthcare industry is, to nicely put it, fucked up. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And there's a massive opportunity. And when we take a look at India... There's a bigger opportunity, but there has not been a standalone fund or a standalone investor that's come about, which is who said that, hey, we are going to take a stance on just healthcare within the ecosystem and just focus on that. We've seen all, you know, we've had agnostic investors who will invest, who supported um, growth. You've obviously had the big five and all the other, other investors who have come along and said, we'll invest, foreign investors who've been investing, but there hasn't been a concentrated approach to build a very robust healthcare or health tech ecosystem in India. Why is that? Yeah, that's, you know, when I see the large funding rounds that go into online groceries and so on, nothing against those businesses. I'm like, even if a few billion can be spent into healthcare infrastructure in India, it'll change, you know, massively. One, wow. one specific state's healthcare infrastructure can be changed with a couple of billion dollars, right? Right. Um, so it's... Uh, I agree with you. I think it's a it's a space that has been underfunded. What has also happened in India, especially if you see it from a VC perspective, is both enterprise tech and consumer tech end up taking the, all the uh, you know all the glory. Right. Uh, and health tech companies uh, are not. I mean, in the sense there there are a few of them. They are stumbling their way through it. Hopefully, a few of them will end up becoming quite big. Uh, some are already there. So it's. It's not, and, and investors are very um, mindful of, are there any success stories in the past? If there are, then let's deploy big capital around it. If they are not, then of course, they'll they'll be a little, uh, you know, which, and we used to see that in enterprise tech. Before the companies really hit big ARRs, nobody really came in with decent size. So I'm, I'm hoping it's a matter of time. 
But one thing to be mindful of in healthcare, particularly as an industry is human lives are involved. So you can't really go and show 80%, 90% growth because the scale up has to be thoughtful. The clinical protocols have to be put in place if you're scaling up a services play. If you're scaling up a manufacturing play, you have to make sure that the biocontainment and all the other regulations are uh, being met. And then it's it's something that you, it's very difficult to expect of 40%, 50%, 60% year on year uh, um, growth rates. In consumer, you can still do it. You'll have to, you know, burn a big hole by just acquiring customers at a discount. But, you know, that's not the opportunity. That's not how healthcare would work. So it, because the growth rates, although it can be compounded over a long period of time, a 25% growth rate is still very attractive. It ends up being the playing ground of guys like us, early growth guys, late stage growth guys, even buyout guys. So I would, I would assume that health tech may see only spor sporadic uh, intervention by VC funds, but late stage guys, there is enough capital that we see um, that is there for healthcare, especially in times like this, right? Where people like defensive sectors, profitability is very important and all these guys have, you know, have a nice track record of profitability. So they come in there. But uh, but you're right. In in even in NEA, we used the lot of the healthcare was around biotech right. um, on the VC side. Uh, we did several you know investments on the uh, on the services side as well, but they were little more growth. Whereas biotech was really early stage. You know, you're backing a molecule and you know, for the rare disease in phase two, for instance. Uh, India, that market unfortunately doesn't exist. So I would say. Uh, so what what does health tech end up doing in India? They end up, you know, doing a lot about I'll develop deliver pharmacies, uh, I'll do teleconsultation, I'll do diagnostics. Most of the money is in diagnostics. So everybody starts chasing diagnostics. You've seen the stock prices of the diagnostic listed companies come down. You've seen a lot of funding happening in that space, but basically you're just eating market share from each other. It's not that you're getting some new customers in the market. Uh, and so it, it ends up being a fairly shallow market, which is not really improving the quality of care or the quality of clinical outcomes uh, or even improving the patient journey ma massively, right? So I think the the place that will come and it, the markets need to mature for that is when you really go into disease management, when you say, look, I'm going to take care of your whole journey, right? From your diagnosis of, you know, as a pre-diabetic, to doing preventive care, to doing uh, allopathy, in addition to doing coaching, all of that will take care of that whole journey. And if you need tertiary care, you need to go into a hospital and you need to do tests, all that stuff, I'm going to you know handhold you through it. Once those kind of plays start becoming start coming up, that's where you know the real value gets created and you can you know see good growth. But right now it ends up being a little uh, point solutions. I'll make a device that will track your blood sugar. I'll do some coaching for you uh, online and offline, but that's that's where the real juice is, and it's not there right now. Right, and are you still bullish on the space as you continue to like look into some of the investments that you'll make in the coming few years? Of course, the I, I know what the answer is going to be, but what I probably should be asking you is where within healthcare will we see the real innovation that's going to come about in the short short term? Let's say next three to four years. Yeah, I I would say that on the services side there are uh, lots of these uh, the, the the disease management solutions that i was talking about they are in place we are tracking a few of them they will scale up in the next two three years mm. and that's where the opportunity for us will come in as they get to that particular size because our investment strategy is also that once we seek differentiation so there should be a good moat in place but also are we coming in at what we view as the point of acceleration that this is the company that has now crossed all these hurdles. It has validated its uh, product across geographies, across client uh, categories. It is just needing this, uh, you know, capital as well as our human capital to come in and then it can really break the scale barrier. So we end up tracking it from that perspective. There are companies in that space uh, that we like who are looking at, you know, some, some guys looking at... Uh, uh, diabetes, some some guy looking at cancer, oncology is a big area. So those kind of spaces we keep we you know we we keep a track on. Uh, I would also say that there are uh, on the manufacturing side, and again this is not a VC play because manufacturing ends up being you know, 
early growth kind of way. But there are companies that are doing, while India is a generic market, as we call it, there is whole complex uh, generics play that is there in India, where things which are difficult to manufacture because they have, you know, like hormonal products or, uh, you know, which are targeted therapies like uh, liposomal injections. And those kind of stuff can be really value added where you have a pricing power. There's not too many people who can do that. India has the expertise to develop it. On those plays, plays can be meaningful from a product perspective, a manufacturing product perspective. I would say uh, from a health, in a health tech space, I would just assume that something which really captures the value chain of the patient is, is something that's going to help. And you have to be, because I'll, I'll give you an example. My dad went for an orthopedic surgery. The surgeon did the surgery, he said, oh, you're good to go home, go and you can start walking, you're, you're fine. But that piece of post-surgical physiotherapy was completely lost. And we had nice. to figure out and get that thing going. Now, typically, as the doctors become independent of hospitals, as new models come in, right? There's this, you can go and do a surgery in any other surgical facility. What is important for a patient will be that continuum of care, right? From diagnosis all the way to post-operative care. And that's where a lot of technology can help in. If these uh, hospitals can help in, you know, all the, in making sure that I'll get a physiotherapist done, tracking your progress for the next two, three months, then there's money to be made there. So uh, that whole thinking of, you know, primary care alag hai and tertiary care is separate and thinking of that, but two different things, uh, that silo ification has to stop. And then as, as we start thinking of the patient journey, it can be done. But the innovation in India, is, as you said, it's still very exciting. A lot of it is happening. India still, you know, we have a company that makes radiation therapy devices at 40% lower cost than the global MNCs. Mm. And this is a US FDA approved product. So this is the best in class. But it's not about the pricing. On features, they beat the MNCs. Uh, and still they make at that price point a very large margin on it. So it is that kind of innovation where you need an understanding of, you know, human anatomy as well as biomedical engineering, combine it into a machine that provides radiation to treat tumors and still on the financial side being so attractive while, you know, beating the best at their business. So that innovation that we see in India is really, really exciting. It continues to be there and it, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll, uh, you know, it'll continue. So that part of it is quite exciting where you can back these players who are selling to you know cancers uh, to cancer centers in the interior of india and completely changing the the you know the quality of care they treat more patients the the cancer is better targeted it's a it's a real improvement i'll sound very ignorant when i ask this question but i'm going to ask this question from a place of humility and also perhaps not knowing to an extent are there enough people working towards creating value in this ecosystem as much as you'd like to. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> it's, I, you know, it's a difficult question because I also see the challenges that people go through right. when they are doing this because we are not a super supportive ecosystem at the early stage. So it will be great for me to wish that, you know, more people are doing it, but I would instead, my wish list would be there's a better ecosystem that gets created where you know people for instance IIT Delhi has a five-year course of biotechnology where people can come out and start doing product development in an ecosystem created by you know jointly by uh, it can be from angel funds which can be from uh, you know uh, medical innovators or large listed healthcare companies uh, but they are given that a very broad ecosystem to create it there are some of them that are already in place but not at massive scale we need more and more of them uh, that come in because once with that support, then they can, then you can take the product out and put it in the wild and start mm. getting data on the back of it, start improving it, put in, you know, remote therapy on the, on the back of it, teleconsultation can happen with it. So the solutions can develop around it, but the core development uh, or the innovation needs a proper ecosystem approach. I think in that last two answers, you've kind of given optimism to a lot of founders you've kind of like given a very you've 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 outlined what the healthcare ecosystem in india can look like where the opportunities are where the deficiencies also may exist and also what we can do as an ecosystem to help more founders and build a robust ecosystem so i thank you for 
that particular response then before i let you go i have one last question um and this might be a little bit of a thinker but then again i wanted to reflect back on your own journey knowing everything that you know today about there is no state question from you today akash everything is make me really yes dog my <laughs> there are no straight questions there are never straight questions on the podcast <laughs> which, <laughs> and i often ask the questions that i typically would want to ask myself so um you can always shoot this question back to me as well so looking back at your journey and knowing everything that you know today about yourself and everything that you have seen what would you tell yourself 15 years ago when you first entered venture capital about bracing yourself for the journey that you would be on or in other words what did you wish somebody had told you about the journey that you were going to embark upon um i would say don't expect uh, any linear or a straight path in your own career in any of the investments you make in any of the decisions you make uh, be always prepared for the unpredictable in this in this business um, which also means being very mindful of what you think to be right to be you know always questioning your own assumptions so i think the biggest challenge that we have in this business is we are so caught up in our own um bubbles in our own assumptions in our own minds because as an investor and you know rightly or wrongly the only person that you have to you know that you are really responsible to is lps and while you know you are mindful of of them but you know the fundraise cycle is once every 2 3 years and so you go and sort of you have to be you know you you really get pulled up for what you did or you get credit for what uh, you know what could happen in that you know within that uh, timeline but you meet entrepreneurs on a daily basis and entrepreneurs you know are obviously a bit reverential to lps not anymore but you know so we always end up thinking oh we are always right because everybody is listening to us everybody is th- saying that you know that's that's a good point even though they may be thinking yaar ye vc kuch bhi bolta hai matlab i have to listen to this guy so a, a bit of that you know you it gets caught in your mind and at a very early age you start thinking i know what's the right thing because i've seen four deals and this fifth deal is going to go that way we are we should be always learning the fourth every deal is unique every journey is unique you are learning on every path the entrepreneur is teaching you the market is teaching you your lps are teaching you and you have to be completely open to that so i would say that uh you know when i i would have said that to my younger self is that always be in listening mode always be in learning mode uh and that's the only way you grow in this business yeah oh this is fantastic piece of advice and i don't think there's a better note that we can end the episode on and you've been nothing but generous in terms of sharing your insights all the learnings that you've had over the years and most importantly been candid with everything that you've learned about the indian ecosystem and working with the founders and sharing some frameworks for us i don't know if you can like realize it but as you were sharing some of your insights what i took away was fantastic frameworks for investors fantastic framework for fund managers fantastic framework for an investor fund as a portfolio supporter and all of these little nuggets of information that you have dropped along the way as was going to help somebody like me and i'm sure more listeners out there who are investors or thinking about becoming investors it can really help us do our jobs better as well so thank you for sharing a lot one of the reasons i love doing this is because i get to learn again from somebody and what they have done some of the best practices that they have utilized over the years and i think i told you this at the beginning of the episode or before we recorded it i am a little bit of everybody that i've met at some point of time in my life and i've learned a whole lot sitting across the table from you here today and just hearing about your journey so thank you so much again for being here on the show and uh, Right. You know. it was my pleasure it was my pleasure it was such so fun so much fun talking to you in case whenever work uh, or otherwise you come to bangalore we'd love to catch up and uh, and you know for advice for for founders that you refer to so i've been putting up these posts for uh, some time now which is really about you know how to pitch to entrepreneurs how to run dd how to have a relationship with how to pitch to sorry vcs and running dd how to even uh, prepare for investor meetings and preparing you know communication so this stuff i put on linkedin as well which your folks if any founders want to you know learn more about uh, uh, you know how to preparing for that whole fundraise journey they can just refer to it and you know if they have any questions i'll be happy to address 
Well, I'll make it a point to add that in the episode notes. So when people listen to it, they can actually refer back to the episode notes and click on those hyperlinks. So that leads them back, back to those posts. Um, once again, thank you so much, Tarun, for being on the podcast. Thanks, Akash. It was a pleasure. Well, that unfortunately brings us to the end of yet another great episode here on the DCVC podcast. Tarun did not really hold back on that episode. He was nothing short of phenomenal. I really enjoyed speaking to him about his entire journey in Indian venture capital, all the way from his time in NEA to what he's doing today with Mega Delta Capital. It was great to learn about some of the challenges from his perspective about what has plagued the Indian healthcare industry and his learnings from working with some of his closest portfolio founders. It's insights like these that make this podcast a very interesting listen. I get to learn from all of these investors and what they've done really, really well and some of the learnings that they've had from some of the people that they've worked with and the ones that have not unfortunately done a great job. Well, if you're like me and you enjoyed this episode and all the other ones that we've brought you so far, please go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps others discover the show, but more importantly, keeps you updated about all of our future episode releases. So make sure you tune back in again next week because we've got a great guest lined up for you here on the podcast. I'll see you on the other side in about a week's time. Until then, stay safe, everybody, and continue to keep hustling.